Well, as you know, the year 2012 did not mark the end of civilization, as many had predicted. Rather, it marked a turning point in human consciousness and a shift toward a more humanistic and less violent existence. But with America at the leading edge of the world influence, the big fear we are facing today is whether America, and by extension mankind, is reaching a tipping point of its existence. Hi, this is Greg Grasso, and welcome to Chapter 1. So, are we headed to an inevitable doomsday scenario? I'm here today with William Gladstone, renowned author, publisher, and cultural anthropologist. Hi, Bill. How are you? Excellent. Wonderful to be on your show. Well, thank you, sir. Good to talk to you. Um, you have a new book, The Power of Twelve, uh, which was released this month, uh, month actually. Yes, just right? a couple of weeks ago. Fantastic. It's, um, it's a novel of the ancient and present legends of the power and wisdom behind the scenes and behind the headlines that affect today's world events. So would you give our audience a snapshot of The Power of Twelve? Sure. The Power of Twelve is... The novel that starts where my first novel, The Twelve, ended, The, the Twelve ended on December 21st, 2012, the end of the Mayan calendar. Right. And Hollywood, of course, had taken the actual Mayan calendar prophecies and pretended that they were saying that it was the end of the world. The Mayans actually never said it was the end of the world. They said it was the end of a 26,000-year cycle and that a new cycle would start on December 22nd, 2012. And in fact, a new cycle has started. And the power of 12 is about what is the meaning of this new cycle? What is the potential for mankind? What are the challenges for mankind? And, you know, it's a novel, so I, I take great liberties with, you know, this scenario, and I have uh, a character who represents the Grand Light and Keeper of the Code for the Illuminati, the, the 319 families who in the novel control 90% of the wealth on planet Earth, and then I have characters, some of whom appear in the first novel, The Twelve, but most of whom are new characters who are combating the status quo and the old paradigm and trying to create change uh, that will allow this new energy to take over and create a uh, basically better world for everyone. And in the Mayan prophecies themselves, they talk about the rise of feminine spiritual energy. So in my novel, The Power of Twelve, I've created a character who is espousing the power of, well, what she calls full feminine energy power now. And so that's one of the themes that runs throughout the novel. And then there's, there's characters from other galaxies, the planet Naranjada, the Council of Twelve, and, you know, on one level it's science fiction, but many people believe that we actually are in communication, in reality, with extraterrestrial intelligence, and that this extraterrestrial intelligence does care what happens on our planet. So there's a lot of different themes. It, the, the novel will appeal to people who are interested in politics. George W. Bush is one of the characters in the novel, and... Um, you know, it'll also appeal to people who are wondering what's going on when such a small percentage of human beings today seem to control so much of the wealth of the planet. Just read an article in AP that 111 individuals control 35% of the wealth in Russia. So, you know, we're a little better here in the United States, but, you know, if you a analyze things, we probably have 100 or so 
billionaires who, you know, collectively control more resources than the bottom 50 million people in our country. So, you know, I'm dealing with some real themes, but it is just a novel and it's meant to, you know, be fun and enjoyable. I explore some of the ancient prophecies, not just from the Mayan, but from other cultures and how they relate to events that are actually occurring on Earth today. Yeah. Well, where did the, uh, what's behind the meaning of 12, though? Well, 12 itself is kind of the magic number of the universe. When I was doing my research for my first novel, The Twelve, I realized that many ancient philosophers, including Pythagoras, Plato, had established that the structure and shape of our universe is a dodecahedron, which is a 12-sided cube. And in the last 20 or 30 years, scientists have discovered that the shape of our DNA is a dodecahedron. So without 12, we wouldn't even be able to pass along our genetic information. And then throughout history, whether apocryphal or real, we have 12 at the basis of almost all of our civilizations. You have, of course, the 12 Disciples. Uh, prophets, the 12, 12 apostles. Dis- mm-hmm. You have variations. of you have the, Even if you believe in Atlantis, you have the 12 of, of Atlantis. Hmm. You, you know, and you know, we have 12 jurors on a jury. We have 12 dozen eggs, 12 inches to a foot. Why is 12 everywhere? We have the 12 signs of the zodiac. And then there's variations of 12. The Hindus believe in the power of 108, which is nine times 12. The Muslims, 144 is their sacred number. So 12 or a variation of 12 somehow seems to have slipped into every major civilization from the beginning of time as a pivotal number. Is it coincidence? No. Is it related to something that is perhaps part of the collective unconscious? Probably. Is it related to mathematical laws of how the universe works? Probably. Can't prove these things, but there's good evidence that 12 is a fundamental building block for the universe. So when I was writing The Power of Twelve, and the reason for the title is we have the Council of Twelve, and um, studies have shown that if you were going to have a business board, twelve is the optimal number of people involved. So I used that information and created something that is fictional, but could in some ways reflect underlying realities about which I'm not even aware, even though I'm the author of the book. Yeah, my head's uh, coming off my shoulders right now. Now that I'm thinking about it, um, yeah, there it's an amazing uh, association with twelve. Um, yeah, uh, crazy. Um, collective unconsciousness. Um, okay. Uh, well, actually, collective unconscious, which is different unconscious, than consciousness. The okay. collective unconscious is what uh, Krober, the great American anthropologist, coined the term, and Carl Jung also, and it, it refers to the collective awareness that we all tap into and may be controlled by, but we're not necessarily aware that we're even part of it. But when you look at phenomena that seems to happen spontaneously, um, you know, scientists in different parts of the world working on the same problem and coming up with the same solution, how did that happen? Mm. And, you know, the theory is that there's something in the collective Mm. that individuals are able to tap into, and we don't know how that works, Hmm. My good friend and author, Dr. Irvin Laszlo, has written about the Akashic Records and his belief that from a scientific perspective, all information that ever will be created or has been created actually pre-exists in a a non-space space, which somehow may be accessible from time to time to certain individuals. Okay. 
uh, all right, help me here. In ni- all right, listen, help me out. In 1972, I was a senior in high school in, in uh, Connecticut, okay? Mm-hmm. We had a sidewalk art show. The project was design something futuristic, okay? I designed an oval-shaped uh, telephone, uh, uh, telephone booth, okay? Mm-hmm. In the 80s, someone designed that darn thing and put it out in New York City, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, is, is this collective conscious something similar to that where yes, I'm, in time and, I'm in time and space right now, I'm thinking or doing something, and there's somebody else somewhere else doing or thinking the same thing? Or it, Well, it's possible someone else is, is doing or thinking the same thing, but the, what the concept really refers to is that the concept itself, where do concepts come from? Mm-hmm. Do you think that you as an individual ever create anything? Or do you think that you as an individual have access to ideas and concepts that are, quote, floating in the universe. Yeah. And that you somehow envisioned and caught that concept, and then maybe a day or two later or a year later or five years later, someone else caught it also. Yeah. Of course, you know, success in our world, in our time-space coordinates, is who acts on it and who has the resources to take the idea and bring it into reality. Obviously, Steve Jobs was able not only to capture some innovative concepts, but also muster the resources and had the belief to, you know, put his money where his mouth was and just go for it. Hmm. So, you know, if you look at great inventors, great success, great scientific breakthroughs, I'm not uh, relegating the individual to non-importance, but even Einstein, you know, used to say that, you know, 90, genius was 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. Mm-hmm. It's that 1% that is the magic, but fundamentally, I mean, you need to have the tools, you need to be ready to spring when the idea comes to you. But the ideas themselves, at least this is the theory, actually pre-exist. And it's a platonic idea also. Plato used to talk about this. Um, you know, the ideas, the ideals already exist. And you just have to rediscover them. Yeah, I've, I've found myself um, over the past 60 years in, in a few situations where it's like, whoa. <laughs> well, this is what, I, I, you know, my first novel, The Twelve, really explored the, the importance of synchronicities mm. and the fact that if you pay attention, there really is some kind of divine plan out there for each and every one of us. And I don't mean it in the sense that you even need to believe in God, but the universe is not unintelligent. And each one of us, it's as if each one of us were a cell in a body, and every cell in our body, of course, is pre-programmed for a certain function. In a similar way, I believe that each and every individual is pre-programmed with a certain destiny in mind. Whether you fulfill your destiny or not is totally up to you. Nothing is predetermined, particularly when you get into the concept that there may be infinite versions of us and infinite time in which we get to experience both success and failure. Yeah. When opportunity knocks, mm-hmm. you either go forward or it goes past you. Or you ignore it. Most you ignore people it. Most people ignore it, right? They just say, oh, that's just a coincidence. Or, well, yeah. you know, I'm too busy. You know, I've got to pay the rent tomorrow. I don't have time for this. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah, now I'm getting it a little bit. Okay. All right. Um, in your book, The Power of Twelve, you talk about zero point. Can can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, the zero point is a concept that I learned from Dr. Irvin Laszlo, and it refers to the, the idea that, and this comes pretty much from quantum physics that we're discovering, that the metaphor that the, the string theorists use is think of our daily reality as the surface of a pond. 
Mm-hmm. But the real reality is the water underneath the pond. Mm. We're totally experiencing sort of the movements of that deeper reality, but not even aware of the deeper reality. Mm-hmm. And in a similar way, the zero point is real reality, if you will. It's where thought forms exist at this deep level, that, and these thought forms are really the genesis of everything that we experience on our planet and in our human bodies. But the ability to access this, these deeper waters, if you will, is a mystery that we're only now beginning to even contemplate how that can be. But we have you know, anecdotal evidence, Mozart's, Beethoven's, genius children mm-hmm. that seem to come in already knowing everything. Yeah. And the explanation for that, at least for Dr. Laszlo, in terms of the zero point, is that somehow these individuals have made a connection with this zero point, and that is where they're accessing the information. And to confirm from other sources that this is not a crazy idea, we have all of the work that's been done over the last 100 years in what we call the human potential, the human development movement. The the real pioneer was a man named Charles Hanel, and I wrote a book called Tapping the Source, which traces his teachings. And he had the same belief that there are universal laws and that you can tap into these universal laws. And once you do, you can manifest on Earth in dramatic ways. And, you know, the secret and other products have come out sort of that are derivations and oversimplifications of his thinking. Hmm. Um, The law of attraction, Hmm. which Charles Hanel called the law of love, and that if you give out positive energy, you will draw back positive energy and, you know, a lot of pop psychologists and other motivational people have, you know, misinterpreted that to mean, you know, all you have to do is think about what you want and you'll attract what you want, and it's not really that at all. But these laws, these universal laws, and the the probability that there is a zero point, which from the Hindu perspective might be called the Akashic Records, Mm -hmm. does in fact exist in reality, is an intriguing thought, and one which can't be disproved. It can't really be proved either, but it, it certainly makes for interesting speculation. Hmm. Um, oh, wow, this this kind of mystical stuff. Uh, it brings me back to the 60s. I was a young kid, but I was very interested in to a society called the Rosicrucians. Yes, you know a lot about them. Okay, yeah, man. I mean, <laughs> I consider... Well, look at, look at from from like very, very early on, I've always... I don't know whether you call me a truth seeker or what, but I was always... I was always gravitate to that. You know, what what is the finite truth in life? And and um Well you're in good company. I mean and I, I'm a member of your generation that we were all seeking in the sixties. We weren't happy with the Vietnam War, we weren't happy with the superficial mm. sort of nineteen fifties lifestyle of, mm. you know, two cars in every garage in the suburbs and everything will be fine. You know, we wanted more. You know, okay, we had overcome a war as a nation. We had gotten to the point of survival was not a day-to-day challenge. But survival alone is not what being a human being is about. It's about opportunities to create challenges, to create beauty, to create a better world, if you will. And, you know, we all were sort of, not all, but many of us were, were taken with the idea of, you know, we want the world, we want it now, we want to see a lot of change. Of course... Some of us drifted off into the drug culture and had psychedelic experiences. I actually did not participate in the psychedelics, but I did have out-of-body experiences and other extraordinary experiences that came 
really without me seeking them. I, I had a near-death experience when I was very young, incorporate that experience into the, the first novel, The Twelve. Hmm. And I totally agree with you that um, that 60s generation was on a mission and that many of the insights that were being retained by societies like the Rosicrucians and the Theophysists and, and Eastern uh, yogic gurus mm-hmm, mm-hmm. was coming up for Westerners at that time. And, you know, the, the whole growth of yoga and, and other, you know, Eastern modalities of thinking is now part of our Western culture, and I think that we have assimilated some of this thinking. But it's making, I would say, a big return at this specific moment, because this kind of energy and this kind of thinking is really what is needed at this critical moment on our planet. We need to integrate Eastern and Western thinking together. We, we have our great technology, our economic machine, but without mitigating the not just the ecological, but the psychological violence, really, of our consumer society with a more spiritually focused society and thought, we, we really are on the brink of destruction. So that's why I think there's so much interest in the Mayan calendar and doomsday theories, because it's up to us as human beings to determine which future we're going to experience. And that's the main thing of the power of 12. There's right. a choice given in the novel. We can choose you know, material, 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 GMO, efficiency, mm-hmm. more money, more material goods, or we can choose a more equitable distribution of wealth and focusing on the joy that comes from creativity and aesthetics, if you will, Mm. and other what traditionally have been considered feminine ideals rather than just masculine. And it has nothing really to do with whether you're a man or a woman. But we are in a moment of tremendous change and tremendous opportunity. And, you know, as the Chinese curse used to say, may you live in interesting times. Mm -hmm. These are indeed interesting times. Maybe Hillary will become the first woman president in 2016. Maybe, well, it, maybe it's her time. Well, well, I, but let me warn you, it's not the body. It's there not there the are body. probably men out there who incorporate more of what I would call feminine values than Hillary. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, so I, I don't see her as the savior necessarily. But, <laughs> I just had to throw that out. <laughs> but, but it is an interesting phenomenon that not just Hillary, but many women in the last 20 to 30 years have risen to positions of power that would never have been possible even 50, 60 years ago. So we are experiencing the change, and it is important that women as a a sexual identity do Mm -hmm. actually be the ones that at least share this change. It's very unlikely that men alone will incorporate these new feminine values. So... I, you know, I, I don't want to make light of, you know, the contributions of Hillary and, you know, other women who in some cases have had to make certain compromises with masculine um, paradigm, but, you know, do have positions of great importance in our world today. Yes, I, I, I see that. <laughs> um, I, I was going to talk about your involvement with Rod Sterling, uh, who, of course, we all know crea- uh, the, was the creator of the Twilight Zone series. You know, I knew you went worldwide. Um, working on uh, uh, what was the name of the show? Well, the uh, show was called In Search of yeah, 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 and I was yeah. only 22 years old. I had just graduated from Yale College, uh, yeah. and uh, it was another just sort of miracle of synchronicities. I was 
writing a book. Uh, my father was a publisher, and he needed a book written. And, hmm. Um, it was about how to get into medical school, so it was really kind of a boring book to write, <laughs> unless you were into medicine, which I wasn't, but I, I knew how to write books and research, and I was doing my research at the Westport Library in Westport, Connecticut, Yes, sure. and every week, you know, every, every lunchtime, I needed to do some exercise, and I would go next door to the YMCA and play paddle tennis, mm-hmm. and one of the people I ended up playing paddle tennis with was a man named Fred Warshawski, who was the producer for the In Search of Ancient Mysteries documentary. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that at the time I played with him the first you know, seven or eight times. And he found out a little more about me. We became friends. He says, hey, you have the perfect background. You should be the researcher for this In Search of Ancient Mysteries. I need someone you know, who knows something about archaeology. And you know, I had studied you know, at Yale, and I knew a, a lot about how to do research. So I was the researcher. And then when I finished the research, Fred came to me and said, hey, you've chosen a lot of places in South America, and I don't know if you chose it because you want a job, but you, you know, you're also fluent in Spanish, and hmm. we need somebody. You want to sign up to be the production coordinator? I said, absolutely. Hmm. So you know, at the age of 22, I was given an around-the-world plane ticket, started off going down to Peru and visiting Machu Picchu in the National Oh, man, yeah. What a I, ride. I ended up going to 12 countries in 12 weeks, Jeez. visiting every major museum and, and ancient site, that was remotely connected to the theory that Eric von Donegan had proposed in uh, Chariots of the Gods, which mm. had been the precursor to In Search of Ancient Mysteries, mm-hmm. about the possibility of alien intelligence contacting human beings. I remember. Ago. Yeah. And so our theme was to try to prove whether von Donegan was right or not and explore the ancient mysteries. Mm. Because the commercial interests felt that that was the best angle. That was the angle that we ended up with in the show. But the reality, as the researcher, was, wait a second, I looked at 10 million objects in museums throughout the world, and I only found six objects that you could interpret as flying saucers or flying machines. Mm-hmm. I probably could have found six images of you as, <laughs> you know, an ancient <laughs> god if I had been looking for them. So I was unconvinced that, you know, Von Donegan was really correct, and it, and, but I did find a lot of ancient mysteries. I found things in Peru, for example. There was a skull that was 500 years old that was presented to me by a neurosurgeon who said, this is an ancient Incan skull that has, and you can see that, and he showed me, you know, on the skull, laser surgery had been performed 500 years ago. That, to me, was mind-blowing. That's that a reach. one of... of several mm. uh, incredible mysteries. I mean, even just looking at, at Machu Picchu and Saiwiti and uh, Cusco, how they built those buildings without, you can't even get a razor blade between these 10-ton stones. How did they even do it? So there's a lot of mysteries that we found that, you know, mm. probably have an explanation other than ancient astronauts. But I have to say, giving you know credit to Von Donegan and those who believe in, in extraterrestrial contact, that on one level, even though I don't think there's necessarily been actual aliens on our planet, right. it is possible that extraterrestrial intelligence, whether telepathically or through this concept of the zero point that we're starting to learn, yes. that individuals were able to access this information in some way. And that in that sense, yes, we, we have had contact with intelligence beyond our planet. Wow. Man, I could talk to you forever, uh, but I can't go into everything I wanted to talk to you about. But I got one. I got one. One other thing. Okay, 
In the beginning uh, of our conversation, I noted uh, that 2012 being a shift uh, toward a more hum- humanistic and less violent existence. Well, <laughs> the world doesn't seem to be happening. Th- I, th- <laughs> I'm, I'm, you're reading my mind. Um, it does not appear to be humanistic and less violent. Rather, you know, I see a lot of destruction going on. So, so Bill, I ask a lot of, uh, mm-hmm. I've got a lot of respect for you and other uh, writers, authors that I've talked to. Uh, what the hell's going on? Okay, how, how, do you, is, how do you see lot, the world? <laughs> okay, well, a lot is going on, and it's not all good. There's, there is evil in the world. Yes. For me, evil has more to do with fear and with going backwards, not yes. being open to change, yes. not being open to a positive future, being in a fear mode, and, and being wrong-headed. Um, you know, as they say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yes. There's a lot of people that are fervent believers in, you know, most of them, unfortunately, are, I would say are fundamentalists, and I don't want to overly criticize them, and it's not just fundamental, you know, Muslims, it's fundamentalists, Hindus, Christians, oh. Jews even. You Chiefs know, of staff, for crying out loud. Anyway. If you're too locked in to the past, yeah. you're not open to the present and the future. Right. And we are living in an evolving universe. Right. And to evolve, we have to be open to change and open to dialogue and open to different points of view. Right. Insofar as these new energies are entering our planet, those who resist them are feeling even more threatened yes. because they are threatened. Yes. And so I think some of the violence that we're observing, it's sort of like when a fever breaks, it's worse just before it breaks. So I think some of the violence that we're seeing is that. At least I hope that it is. There's no guarantee, of course, but I would not look at the violence that we're experiencing as a sign that the new energy is not also here. Right. I've always thought that um, you got to hit rock bottom before you start to pull yourself up. You know, it's almost like a healing process that we may be go- evolving into. I think you're exactly right. People will ignore a problem if it's just a minor pain. Mm. But when it becomes life-threatening, you start paying attention. And that's true with, you know, take someone who's overeating. Mm -hmm. You know, they can overeat. Oh, I've got an extra 20 pounds. But they go and see their doctor, and the doctor says, well, guess what? You continue this, you're going to be dead in six months. (laughs) There's going to be change. Whereas if you said, well, you're a little over the border, but, you know, nothing to worry about. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to keep overeating. So. I think that's a little bit, you know, greatly oversimplified, but describing sort of the wider issues that are, are you know, at play here. It's sort of like an ocean. You know, we've got so much going on, and part of it is we know what's going on. A hundred years ago, we had no idea when there was an earthquake in another part of the world. Right. Today, we know instantly. Right. We also know instantly when there's a chemical you know, atrocities such as occurred in Syria last month or two right. months ago. Right. We know about it immediately. Yeah. This is actually a good thing. It's painful. It's disturbing. But at least it becomes something of which we're aware and about which we can take action. So even though there's plenty of reasons to despair, there's also plenty of reasons to have hope for the future. I agree. I, I think it's a big wake-up call for humanity, um, what we're going through right now. And uh, damn it, I, I wish I could talk to you longer. <laughs> I want to get you back on the show. I really do. This, I could go on for days with you because I've got a lot in my head and I've got a lot that I'd like to discuss with you. Anyway. Well, there's, a lot, there's a lot 
that needs attention right now, and, and you know, I'm sort of in a good position. I'm also a literary agent, so mm. I write my books not so much, you know, I do hope they all sell and we can all use extra money. It's mm-hmm. always fun. Mm-hmm. But I really write them because I have something that I want to share and I want to stimulate thinking. Yeah. And so I do encourage, you know, WilliamGladstone.org is the, is the website, and I do blog now, and, and you know, it's, it's, I don't always answer all the emails I get there, but, you know, I answer some of them. And I am interested in what you and your listeners are interested in. And, you know, I really do feel we're all in this together. And it's through exploration, it's through curiosity, it's through reading, writing, and discussion that we are going to solve the solutions and that there are solutions out there. So, you know, thank you for doing your show. And, you know, I'll be happy to come back. I'd love to have you back. I think that uh, critical thinking is one of the most important tools we could learn as as, uh as mankind in general. Uh, Your chapter 30, The Devil is in the Details. I love it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Thank you, Bill. Okay, take care. See you. Bye-bye.